the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to that speech. Every time it gives me goosebumps. Standing there at the Brandenburg Gate, clarity and moral vision about the bipolarity of the Cold War with one side that stood for liberty and freedom, the other imprisoned nations under the jackboot of the Kremlin. The American president says, tear down this wall to the general secretary of the Communist Party. And 17 months later, it wasn't Mikhail Gorbachev. It was the captive peoples of East Berlin, who with sledgehammers, with chisels, took apart the Berlin Wall. November 9th, 1989, a glorious day in history. I'm so excited when this man comes on our show because I get to geek out on a topic that I love so much. It's the Cold War and our victory in that Cold War. He is the editor-in-chief of The Spectator. Welcome, Paul Kengor, to America First. Or rather, welcome back. Well, girl, greetings uh, from a fellow uh, Reagan geek, Sebastian <laughs> Gorka. Greetings to you. Yeah, I, th- I think we can collectively say we are uh, Reagan, Thatcher, and St. John Paul geeks together. However, only <laughs> right. one of us has written a library of, on those works. Eric, do we have some of the books we can show? So my favorite is Dupes, How America's Adversaries Have Manipulated Progressives for a Century. Then we have A Pope and a President, uh, John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and the extraordinary untold story of the 20th century, and The Devil and Bella Dodd, One Woman's struggle against communism and her redemption, and so much more. Um, I'm going to tee this up with a real simple question, Professor. Uh, (laughs) Did we win the Cold War? Well, yeah, we definitely won the Cold War. Now, I, I know what you're getting at. It feels at times like like we didn't win, right? I mean, we we won the battle in the on the battlefield, so to speak, the sort of ideological battle and the confrontation between 
the free West and also the communist East. But I guess you could say we lost the battle in the classroom, right? Right. And as you and I have talked about before, we're battling today an altogether different form of Marxism. And in fact, this Marxism in a way is kind of even more insidious because a lot of the people that are engaging in it don't even know that they're on the side of it. And when you work, when you use words like cultural Marxism to explain what they're doing, they might go, even if they do this, they might go to Google and type it up and the little box pops up on their screen saying anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, right? Let's break that down for a second because this is, this is really, truly important. Uh, Chris Rufo and, and others have, have written about this, as have you. So um, we have the bipolarity of the Cold War. We have free nations, America, NATO, the West. We have the Soviet bloc, the second world. People think, okay, what's the third world? Okay, we know what that is. Well, what was the second world? It was the communist bloc. It was the Warsaw Pact under the control of the Kremlin. And then the threat of thermonuclear destruction, mutually assured destruction until November the 9th. And we say, okay, uh, we won the ideological conflict with the Soviet Union and the satrapy states. But then there's this other form of Marxism, the less obvious Marxism, the cultural Marxism. And will you just for a second explain, A, what that means, and the recent history in the last, what, four years, five years, of, for example, the Internet entries, such as on Wikipedia, for cultural Marxism, and what have happened to those entries, Professor? Yeah, in fact, I wrote a piece for the American Spectator. It's called uh, Cultural Marxism and Its Conspirators. And I did a follow-up piece called Cultural Marxism and Its Conspirators Part 2, where I laid out what's going on with Google and some of the different search engines on this. But I'll back up a little bit here first. I, I mean, we could blame this once again on, frankly, German Marxists, right? I mean, the, so the original classical Marxism, that was Marx and Engels. They published their Communist Manifesto in 1848. And that pitted the world between uh, you know, this, the, this proletariat versus the bourgeoisie, right? The capitalist class, the oppressed class, and the oppressor. And then along comes about, i do my math here, maybe about 80-some years later, another group of Marxists from Germany from the so-called Frankfurt School. And this, group's, this group conceives something called Freudian Marxism. They actually take the worst ideas of the 19th century, right, Marx, classical Marxism, and combine them with the nuttiest ideas of the early 20th century, Sigmund Freud. And they create this this school, this fusion called Freudian Marxism. So it's a kind of sexual Marxism. But but here with with the, the Frankfurt School and the Marxists who apply their craft to sexuality, culture, gender, all these other different areas, they're once again the, the, the general Marxist superstructure is to, is to identify the new oppressed versus the new oppressor, right? That's how all of this sort of ties together. So for Marx and Engels and the classical Marxism, it's the working class versus the capitalist class, right? The landowners versus the workers. With the, with the Frankfurt School, it's based according to culture, with the modern-day race-based Marxists, it's, ba- it's based according to race. So you know, whites will be the oppressor, blacks will be the oppressed. And what, what's so incredibly simplistic and offensive about this 
is that it, it, it hammers you into one of these groups as if um, that's an easy binary way to just define the whole world, right? You're either in this enemy class or you're not. You're either in the oppressed class or the oppressor class. And in fact, things don't work out that easily. It's so many people, look at America, this melting pot. I mean, you know, your family was immigrants. My family came here from Italy in the early 1900s on my mom's side, from Poland on my dad's side. And I mean, my family, we did, we got Christmas coming up. Last year for Christmas, we did Ancestry.com DNA tests. Uh-huh. I got to tell you, we're all over the place in terms of ethnicity, right? I don't see how you could put us in any certain box, let alone uh, black or white. In fact, my youngest son, who's adopted, is um, considered black. But um, we haven't done his test yet, but he's probably half white. Um, Barack Obama's half white. (laughs) Barack Obama's mother was white. So to simply stick people in these categories, it's very stereotypical. It's very offensive. but, um, But this is what today's Marxists are doing in America. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Could you go back to that Frankfurt School moment? Because I don't think people appreciate this enough, this, this concatenation, this devil's brew of Marxism in terms of class you know, revolution. And then you add in Freud, one of the worst ideas of the 20th or 19th century. So what, what, what did the Freudian addition to Marxism bring? Uh, was it the sexual liberation? What was it? Yeah, sex was a big part of it. In fact, this guy is really not so much a part of the Frankfurt School, but he is part of that milieu and that general movement. His name was Wilhelm Reich. Yeah. And people could look this up, Reich, R-E-I-C-H, Wilhelm Reich. And listen, folks, he literally wrote the book, The Sexual Revolution. So his book, published around 1929, 1930, was titled The Sexual Revolution. So people listening now are thinking, oh, yeah, The Sexual Revolution, that's the 1960s. Yeah, it was in America and in the West, but long preceding it was Wilhelm Reich. And and in fact, fact, Reich was such a a freak show that when he went to the Soviet Union, the Bolsheviks (laughs) were were just aghast at this guy, right? I mean, they they didn't even want, want any part of him. So he comes back to America, and you can read that book. You can read his memoirs. His memoirs are really weird. And and Wilhelm Reich, from the time that – I don't know if I could say this on Salem Radio Network, but, uh, I mean, the, the guy from the time that he was a little boy was just – sadomasochistic, uh, just a sexual freak. I mean, chronically doing things sexually to himself, to 
farm animals, you know, fantasizing about his mother and watching his mother in bed with her lover and watching his father attack his mother. Just crazy. And you read the, and I'm going through all this because when you read the ideas of some of these people, you think, wow, and this is the author of the sexual revolution? Yeah. Yeah. That so many people in the 1960s, like Kate Millett, who wrote the book Sexual Politics, which was her dissertation at Columbia in the late 1960s, and ended up on the cover of Time magazine, which called her the Mao Zedong of the women's movement. Wow, this is who they followed? And Kate Millett was even weirder, probably, than Wilhelm Reich. In fact, I know Kate's sister, Mallory, who's written for Front Page Magazine and a bunch of other publications. And I'll say this flat out, Seb. I mean, Mallory's on the record repeatedly saying that she thought that Kate was not just psychologically messed up, but but flat out possessed by demons. Kate Mallory has actually said that. And, and, and Mallory has said to me, you know, one of the things I'll never understand in my life is all these people at all these colleges that were suddenly using my sister's book as required reading in their college courses didn't realize my sister was insane. Yeah. She was out of her mind. And here they are reading her book like it's this, you know, the brilliant work by somebody. My sister was crazy and possibly e- even 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 demonically possessed of all things. Yeah, I'm um, going so to tie, tie that theory into something I heard from one of the smartest people I know just a few days ago. I was having dinner with one of the brightest guys I know, Rich Minita, one of the, the dying breed of, of real investigative journalists. If you want to check out how good right. he is, his books on losing bin Laden and on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and the mastermind on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed are, are just essential reading if, if you want to understand the jihadi threat. And he once, I, I think I can reveal this, he came up with this idea. He was working for the Wall Street Journal and they never greenlit the article, but he had the idea to go down to Occupy Wall Street. Do you remember Occupy Wall Street? You know, the oh, yeah. anti capitalist sure. And he said, I've got an idea. I'm going to go down there, and the same thing would go for the Bernie bros a few years later, and ask every single one of those, you know, socialist, communist, let's take down Wall Street. One simple question. Tell me how you feel about your father. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. That, that there is this... These people aren't healthy. If you look at the Frankfurt no. School, if you look at Marx himself, if you look at Engels, these people, uh, they're already damaged before they try and preach to others to destroy the system. How much of this, when you look at the, the key figures, when you read Witness by Chambers, when you read the book, the Bella Dodd book that you co-authored, how much of the modern socialist communist movement is simply the propagation of, of sick ideas from people who themselves are psychologically and psychiatrically sick? Yeah, in fact, Paul Vitz, who was a sociologist at NYU, he wrote a book a few years ago, probably a couple decades ago now, called Faith of the Fatherless. And um, it was kind of a study, a character study on some of these infamous intellectuals who came from either fatherless homes or homes that had a bad father. And that certainly explains Wilhelm Reich. It explains, you know, Marx had this terrible relationship with his father. You and I talked about this before. And, um, and a chapter of my book, The Devil and Karl Marx, I quote a letter from Heinrich Marx, his father, who um, asks his son if the, if the spirit in his heart is a heavenly spirit or Faustian, if he's being governed by a demon, as he put it. 
and and he and Marx had this split to the point where when when his when his when the father died, Karl Marx didn't even go to the father's funeral. Wow. So so that that's the case with many of these guys. Wilhelm Reich, another um, Eric Fromm, right? Remember Eric Fromm? He you know he was a, a psychologist who who was out of the Frankfurt School, and and to pick up on that point that in the last segment, if yeah, if you go to Wikipedia. And you type in, you, you, you Google cultural Marxism, what pops up is this phrase that says that it's this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, right? But, but, what, but as, but as if the Frankfurt School and Ordorno and Marcuse and Reich didn't exist? Right, and 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 as as if they weren't applying Marxism to culture, right? And that's what they were doing. There was was a culturally based Marxism, right? So, what should we call it? Not cultural Marxism. Do you prefer to call it um, Marxism applied to culture? <laughs> well, we call uh, Marxism applied to sex, sexual Marxism. We call Marxism applied to gender, gender Marxism. Marxism applied to race, race Marxism. So, Marxism applied to culture has always been called cultural Marxism. Marxism. And the founders of the Frankfurt School, to get really specific about this, um, two guys in particular, Max Horkheimer, okay, and Theodore Adorno. And uh, and it was they, Horkheimer in particular, who brought the Frankfurt School to America through Columbia University in the 1920s. And Horkheimer and Adorno, and I have these details if people want to look it up in my article for the American Spectator, Cultural Marxism and Its Conspirators, they had a book called The Dialectic of Enlightenment, and they had a chapter in there called The Culture Industry. Right? That's what they, call, they called it The Culture Industry. And if, and if you go to the About section of People's World, which today is the flagship publication of the Communist Party USA, it replaced the Daily Worker. They have a call there, Seb, for what they call cultural workers, cultural workers, all right? They're not calling for steel workers. And my family is from Western Pennsylvania. They were steel workers, um, coal miners. They're not calling for coal miners. All the West Virginia coal miners all vote for Trump, right? They've given up on that. Their new target now are cultural workers, all right? They're interested in the barista at Starbucks, right? They're not focused on the factory floor. They're focused on the classroom floor. They're they're looking at I, I mean these are the areas for for their for their future recruits. Um, George Lukash, who was uh, the the cultural commissar for the Hungarian government of, of Bela Kuhn, right in yeah. the late 1910s. That's where your family is from. Um, he was a cultural commissar. These were Marxists applying their craft to culture. They're cultural Marxists, and these are the people today, along with the race-based Marxists, that are really upsetting and wreaking havoc in a lot of America and in American culture. So um, you mentioned, Paul, the, the race-based Marxism. It seems as if the, you know, the obvious switch is, uh, in the last 40 years, the Marxists took uh, Gramsci's analysis seriously. They realized pitting the workers against the capitalists 
isn't going to work in a country like America. So we've got to find a new dividing line. And the new dividing line has to be men or women, sexual orientation, straight versus gay, and then the race-based. The whites are the oppressors, vice everybody else. You've got a little bit of a you know, t- tinge to your pallor, unless you're yellow, because I guess Asians, you know, they, they, they are being discriminated against by the likes of Harvard and, and Yale. But if you're brown, if you're black, then uh, you must be the oppressed. Talk to us. Explain how Black Lives Matter fits into all of this. And I'm curious, I may be overthinking it, but it seems to me that their brand has rather withered on the vine. Will they be uh, resuscitated for the next election? Talk to us about BLM. Yeah, the key here is Herbert Marcuse and Angela Davis as yeah. the connection to the Frankfurt School. But let me back up one step. So uh, I mentioned this, too. You mentioned Gramsci. So Gramsci was an Italian Marxist, so he wasn't part of the Frankfurt School. But he, too, was about what he called cultural hegemony. Right. So applying Marxism to the to the engines of culture, the conveyor belts of culture. Um, there's a phrase associated with him. Actually, somebody else said it. But but about the long march through the institutions and the foremost expert on Gramsci in the United States was a man by by the name of Joseph Buttigieg, who's the father of Pete Buttigieg. Okay, <laughs> Mayor Pete. And, and wasn't it until very Pete. recently, because he, he died maybe two years ago, what was it, he the did. website for the American socialists had some kind of hagiography on their front page for, for Boot yes, Edge's the, father? That's right. The International Gramsci Society was founded by, by Pete Buttigieg's father, Joseph Buttigieg, who was a professor at Notre Dame, of, of all things. And if you actually read the prison notebooks edited by Joseph Buttigieg, he credits, he acknowledges his son Pete in the acknowledgments for Pete's help with indexing. Among other things, Pete Buttigieg, that would be... Can I just repeat, in case you missed the significance of what the professor just said, the father of one of the cabinet members in the Biden administration was the leading author and translator of one of the most important cultural Marxists in the 20th century, correct? That's exactly right. Pete, the guy who talks about racist bridges, okay? (laughs) And if that seems like an absolutely idiotic statement, that's something that I would expect from somebody um, who's an expert on Antonio Gramsci. And, it, and his father was an admirer of Gramsci. So, uh, yes, yeah, so that, that's the modern Gramsci connection all the way literally into the cabinet of uh, Joseph Biden. You can't make this stuff up, right? You can't make this up. Now, as to the, the connection with BLM and, and, and those groups, yeah, and going back to the Frankfurt School, the most famous Frankfurt School wasn't uh, Theodore Adorno or Max Horkheimer, who were the founders. Eric Fromm, uh, he was really well known, but probably definitely the most famous was Herbert Marcuse. Yeah. So it's spelled Marcuse, but it's pronounced Marcuse. So Marcuse comes to Columbia University to America with Adorno, with Horkheimer in the 1930s. He becomes this guru to the 1960s new left, weather underground. Um, SDS, right? Mark Rudd, Bernardine Dorn, yeah. um, who was Bernardine Dorn's sweetheart? Bill Ayers, right? right. So Bernardine and Bill Ayers, from whom Barack Obama, 
actually launched his political career in their living room, all right, when he first ran for state senator in, in, in Illinois. New York Times even wrote about this, I think circa 1995. Um, but, but, but they were, so Marcuse was a guru to Bill Ayers, Bernadine Dorn, Mark Rudd, SDS, Weather Underground. Most of all, he was a direct guru mentor to his doctoral dissertation student, Angela Davis. Yeah. Now, Angela Davis is the most famous female Marxist living in America today. In fact, she ran for vice president of the United States on the Communist Party USA ticket in the 1970s, along with Gus Hall. Um, and Barack Obama's CIA director, John Brennan, said he actually voted for that ticket for president of the United States. In 1980, John Brennan, Obama's CIA director, didn't vote for Carter or Reagan. He voted for Gus Hall and Angela Davis in 1980. That's Barack Obama's CIA director. So um, Angela Davis became and is America's most famous um, female Marxist, and she's a race Marxist. Yeah. So she, she's black. She's a black woman. She is, and now the mentoring continues. She's also mentor to the founder of BLM, Patrice Cullors. And yeah. if you look in Patrice Cullors' memoirs, which is called um, How I Became a, Something About Being a Terrorist, what they call me, I can't remember the name of it right now. But the preface is written by Angela Davis. So um, the Frankfurt School, a direct line from Herbert Marcuse to Angela Davis to Patrice Cullors today. In in, uh, in, in English, in unacademic terms, uh, the way we conclude is there are no coincidences. Someone very profoundly once said many years ago that if fascism ever comes to America, it'll come in the name of, li of liberalism. And what is fascism? Fascism is private ownership, private enterprise, but total government control and regulation. Well, isn't this the liberal philosophy? The conservative, so-called, is the one that says less government, get off my back, get out of my pocket. So um, when we listen to that warning from the late, great Ronald Reagan, when we see Antifa, BLM run right across the nation, when we see the DOJ, the FBI target a former, and God willing, if we do our part, future president, when we see the January Sixers getting 22-year custodial sentences, despite some of them not even being in Washington, D.C. on the day of the troubles, would, would we have to conclude, uh, Professor Kengor, that the cultural Marxism is working? That's one of my favorite quotes, the one that you played from Reagan. And in fact, um, Alexander Trachtenberg, who was the American representative for the Soviet GPU, he said that several times to Bella Dodd. And I mentioned that Angela Davis is the most uh, famous female Marxist living today. Um, Bella Dodd in her day in the 1930s and 1940s was kind of like a female Whitaker Chambers. She was one of the highest ranking members of the Communist Party. She ended up leaving the party, which was a, was a big deal. But Trachtenberg told her, he said, um, you know, when, when socialism comes to America, right, when communism comes to America, it will become it will come in benign labels like uh, like progressive, liberal, uh, progressive. Or, or, or liberal. It'll, it'll talk about things like equity. 
Equity, social justice. They use the word social justice and, and democracy, too. Bella Dodd said, oh, democracy. Oh, it's all they say. Democracy, democracy, democracy. And, and in fact, uh, Vladimir Lenin talked about democracy. He said, yeah, we support democracy. What do we mean by democracy? Democracy means equality. So for the communists, you know, that, that's a word, as, as Belladon and the others said, it's a trick, right? It's palatable, right? Um, oh, we believe in democracy, too. Uh, as Belladon said, they call it economic democracy, meaning like economic equality. So when I hear these people at MSNBC say things like, January 6th, a threat to our democracy, our democracy. And, and, and right, we scratch our head and we're like, what are they talking about? I, I, what do they mean by that? Do they mean... The threat to like Jefferson and Madison and the Bill of Rights and the right to like vote and what are they talking about? We're a representative republic, right? right? Well, they mean a completely different thing, right? So for them, yeah, dem democracy means equity, equality, but but it means it in a way that they intended. We, yeah, you and I think uh, we think, oh yeah, equality, equity, it's a good thing, right? No, they mean it in a completely different way. Uh, they'll mean it in terms of you know um, sexual equality, LGBT. Q equality, uh, environmental equality and equity, economic equity and equality. So they have all kinds of other ideas that, that, that they're pushing with. They don't mean it in the same way that we do. Would you say, um, well, as you know, the foremost historian on, on the Cold War, are you surprised by where America is today? No, because as we saw all of this coming, I was going to say I, but you saw it too. When um, I, I was in, a, we were both students in the 1980s, right? Right. And when the, when Reagan gave that speech at the Brandenburg Gate in November 1989, I remember coming home as a pre med student at the University of Pittsburgh and turning on the evening news and watching that and and cheering. I thought, whoa, what was that? I remember talking to Peter Robinson, who wrote the Tear Down This Wall speech, and Peter told me, too, he said, you know, I was there, I went ahead of time to the, do the advanced research for the speech for the Brandenburg Gate. I wrote it, but I wasn't there when Reagan gave it. And Peter said, I remember watching it on TV, waiting for that line to come and thinking, oh, man, that was good, right? That's even better than I thought. That was so good. And that year, 1989, 1990, I graduated in May 1990. I was the edit edit editorial page editor for my student newspaper, the Pitt News. And I remember thinking, wow, we won. You know, we won. We won the Cold War. But then I went to graduate school in the 1990s. And I saw that none of these lessons of the Cold War, uh, the, the, the communism that we defeated, were being taught. Yeah. And by the year circa 2000, Groups like um, the Young America's Foundation, ISI, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, they start, suddenly started hosting me going around the country, speaking on college campuses, giving talks with titles like Why Communism is Bad. <laughs> I would get these desperate pleas from these college Republican presidents. Could you please come here and give a talk of why communism, communism is bad? Because we have Marxist professors and we have students that are calling themselves communists. Wow. And they don't even know why Reagan tore down, tore down the Berlin Wall. So I could see it all coming. And, and one of my warnings was if we don't teach these lessons of the Cold War, this is going to come back and bite us. And we're going to be voting for socialists yeah. in 20 years. And he, that's what we did in 2016 and 2020. Look how many of them voted for Bernie Sanders, yeah. of all things. Uh, let's just listen to the current incumbent of the White House say something that really 
comes right out of the Marxist, if not the Maoist, playbook. Children are the kite strings. They're not somebody else's shoes. They're all our children. Are the kite strings that lift our national ambitions aloft. And you hold those strings. You hold those strings. On the 4th of July, the current president said they are all our children. Isn't that right out of Marxism? I had a hard time even understanding what the man was saying. You know, it's uh, <laughs> that's another question. Just, that's another question. <laughs> not just intellectually, but uh, fortunately, we have this on screen, and there is a lady doing sign language there. I don't know sign language, but I think I had an easier time understanding her almost than I did Biden. Um, I don't. I don't know what he means by that. But it's interesting that you would play that because in the last segment we were talking about how um, Pete Buttigieg is now in the Biden cabinet. You know, there was once a time when when Joe Biden was. Was fairly moderate on foreign policy. Yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, the or, guy or even abortion or all kinds of things. That's exactly right. I mean, at one point in the late 1970s, he supported the Hyde Amendment, right? And he didn't flip on the Hyde Amendment until, I think it was July 2019 in Atlanta. I wrote a piece on this for the American Spectator under the badgering, the hounding, the bawling and hissing and crying of Kamala Harris and, uh, and Elizabeth Warren, who sat up there sobbing. Ah! Hide them. And then and then Biden flipped on it just like that. And that was, and that for me was a real moment that uh, you know we were kind of hoping that well all right we're going to nominate the old guy Biden at least they're nominating someone who's a bit more to the middle. Yeah. He's turned out to be this, this radical leftist. Yeah, who, he, who he, I think he's, he's really completely his... he's genuflected to the likes of the squad, hasn't he? Yeah, he really has. He really has across the board. Yeah. You know, sexual issues, gender issues, abortion, social, moral issues. I mean, the guy's Roman Catholic. At one point on the abortion issue, he wasn't terrible. He was never good on the issue, all right? But he probably had a, you know, a NARAL, National Abortion Rights Action League rating, a pro-life rating, right. somewhere closer to the to the middle, right? But now the guy would get a big fat zero on pro-life issues. And on foreign policy, I mean, he used to be kind of a Cold War Democrat. Yeah. Uh, but but it's, it, it, he's somebody who should have learned these lessons of the Cold War. Right. Uh, that ought to be applying them today to China and elsewhere. But he's just drifted along with the zeitgeist and the, the spirit of the time and the winds of the culture. And all the lefties in his cabinet, the Buttigieg's, the Kamala Harris's and others, are just tugging him right along with them. So it's it, with them. So it's really sad to see. Yeah, there are no Cold War or even just reasonable Democrats left. Uh, as my friend Chris Plant says, uh, often right. John F. Kennedy wouldn't be allowed in today's Democrat Party. Uh, I wish not. you, Professor Kangor, a very merry, blessed and restful Christmas. If you are listening to this show, if this was not enough for you, make sure you are following all of his colleagues at spectator.org and check out any work with his name on The Spine is Worth Your Time, from the devil and carnal marks to dupes to Belladard to a pope and a president. They are all worth your time. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.